thank you for joining me for quite excellent episode number 41. This week's poem is The Land of Storybooks by Robert Louis Stevenson, author of the novel Treasure Island. I'm coming to it from the collection A Poem for Every Night of the Year, edited by Ali Asiri, uh, a companion to her Every Day of the Year collection, which I've referenced quite a few times. After a few weeks of poems concerned with hardship and pushing through that hardship, or sometimes not, I'm pleased to share a poem that offers some beauty and joy again. Before we get to Stevenson, however, we must return to Stevie Smith's Not Waving, But Drowning, a poem that all of my students really seem to make sense of, with variations and particular focuses between them. Here's that poem. Not Waving, But Drowning, by Stevie Smith. Nobody heard him, the dead man, but still he lay moaning. I was much further out than you thought, and not waving, but drowning. Poor chap, he was always larking, and now he's dead. It must have been too cold for him, his heart gave way, they said. Oh, no, 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 it was too cold always. Still the dead one lay moaning. I was much too far out all my life, and not waving, but drowning. I'm going to start out by talking about how students understand the dead man, um, one of the speakers of this poem. The student said that he was too far out, on the wrong path, drowning in misery or the challenges he seemed to be facing. Uh, A student notes that the reference to further out reminds them of swimming in an ocean, where the further you get from shore, the harder it is to not drown, as the waves get bigger, and the student likens these waves to emotions when we are surrounded by the bigness and the isolation of those kind of situations. Another student points to that same line, uh, which was, I was much too far out all my life, and indicates that the dead man was too far out for help from anyone, and that his only real rival or maybe even companion was death, just waiting. And the student doesn't say this, but I feel like we're talking tonally about a a feeling of hopelessness, which I think really feels appropriate to this poem. This same line, um, according to another student, suggests that maybe he felt lonely, too far out from people drowning in sorrow. Another says that on the inside they could be hurting and other people just aren't seeing it. uh, A student said that someone is dead, yet loved larking and became estranged at sea, to say that they feel like their life is pointless now, having previously spent it being carefree, having fun, but now drowning all the pressures of life. These are two slightly different interpretations. One is someone who is legitimately surrounded by grief and difficulty, and people falsely perceive them as having a good time, and the other being that they are, in fact, outwardly having this good time, but doing it as a kind of mask, as a way of hiding that internal sorrow that others don't seem to see. And we start to think about those others, the onlookers, as one of the students refers to. Uh, And he says that they incorrectly assess the emotional cause of the deceased's death, that it must have been too cold. That this was his whole life, and he was trying to signal that something was wrong, but they weren't seeing it. 
Another student says that uh, the people who knew him just thought he was always loved larking and wasn't being serious. And they referred to the boy who cried wolf. And a few students did this, refer uh, to Aesop's fable about a boy who repeatedly says that there's a wolf and eventually they aren't taken seriously. And so this is a little bit different. This is instead of the presentation of a character, uh, a speaker who plays at fun. And so the idea that this person who is so outwardly joyful is actually in pain is almost impossible for the people around them to understand. A student says that the bystanders never took the man seriously because they always thought he was joking when in reality he was begging for someone's help. Another says the author shows the feeling of being ignored. The dead man keeps repeating, not waving, but drowning and too far out. This shows that his whole life people were overlooking him. And I think this is an important part. Um, poets repeat lines to make you pay attention to them, to emphasize certain ideas that we don't want to miss. And we have that here. Not waving but drowning is not only in the poem twice, but it's also the title. We get it in the beginning when we read the title, in the middle when we are first introduced to it, and then it's the very last line. That repetition is important. And that failure to see that drowning is important. And students noted that the way that the the onlookers, the bystanders, seem to talk about the dead man suggests something maybe really sad in their witnessing. A student says that the, the way they speak is nonchalant. They nonchalantly state that the person drowning is non-gone. Uh, another student has a similar idea, suggesting that the town or the, the setting, the people that are around have an attitude as if nothing of value was lost. There's a, a kind of monotone voice of the citizens that bring in the idea that there's a, that the, the drowned man has been forgotten. They say, poor chap. He was always, he always loved larking and now he's dead. That last line is so final and flippant and dismissive that it really kind of establishes how unimportant maybe this death is. Uh, and on this line, uh, this n nobody heard him, where it's talking about him calling out and not really being recognized as being in pain, a student points to the actual sound of those letters, heard him. This is a delicate, breathy, even somewhat sad because of the softness of the H, the student says. And I agree completely. Uh, the sonic qualities of the words that are being chosen, the way they actually sound coming out of the breath of the, of the voice, that hardly heard is legitimately hard to hear. There's soft sounds that can be overlooked really easily. Yeah, that's a, that's a really great observation. And related to the kind of monotone uh, afterthought of this death, uh, students really grabbed on to the, the fact that they didn't really seem to see this person at all until they were gone. A student says, I think that he wasn't recognized before, but then when he passed, people noticed. Another on the same idea said, it's not fair that people get ignored for half their life. And when they're gone, there's suddenly someone who cares when they didn't care when that person was still there. Another says that this is very sad and it often happens in real life among famous and among ordinary people. It's everywhere. This poem is about the detachment and pain of a human soul. And I get that. I think that is a, a really thoughtful way of connecting this poem to human experience and how easy it can be to overlook people. 
And that becomes especially easy in our current environment right now in this pandemic world that we happen to listen to. And I wouldn't have thought that. I wouldn't have made that connection myself, but a student did. Uh, they point to people who worked themselves to death, especially relevant in the time of COVID. Many people are forced to work remotely. That nearly kills them from the inside. And of course, who's going to notice? The connections we have to people during COVID are so different. And it's easy to miss those smaller features of suffering and difficulty, especially when our interactions are remote. And we put on a brave face when we interact remotely through text messages, maybe through a phone call or a video chat or a social media. We can pretend pretty easily that way, but doesn't it feel like waving when we do that, even if we're drowning? There's also a connection from another student to actual diagnosed suffering. The student says that people who suffer from depression often hide how they're feeling. They, they might call out in ways that aren't understood, and then people look at it like it's something else. They go on to say that this is a poem that's telling you to check on people and make sure they're okay and make sure they're, they really are waving and that they're not drowning. And yes, I, I think that is just this side of brilliant. It's wonderful. Other students had similar ideas that suggested that you don't always see the struggling. And then they could end up giving up because of what they're going through, because of not being recognized and seen. Another says that this shows how in a world full of coldness, it's hard not to drown sometimes. Onlookers might say it's the coldness of the world that overcomes them, but sometimes it's that, that lack of a warmth when people don't realize how cold you truly are. Another student related here, I think, says that not waving but drowning expresses that if you don't have control over your life, you may drown in a world of your own suffering. And to be honest, control is really hard to come by. I don't know that this is a poem explicitly about control because sometimes you just can't have control. Sometimes you can't always make all the decisions that will change your life. Oftentimes we do. We have small opportunities for growth, for happiness, for things like that. But this kind of requires other people to be compassionate, just like another student said, right? That we have to check on people. We have to make sure they're okay. Some people don't have nearly the opportunities to control their life that we do. There's privilege that comes along with being able to control your own life. And if you have that privilege, trying to extend it to other people, I think, is one of the kindest things we can do. And one of the best things we can do to make sure that everyone, hopefully, is getting along a little bit better than they otherwise would be. Now, our next poem is The Land of Storybooks by Robert Louis Stevenson. This next poem is about books and reading and the joy they can bring to basically everyone that puts in the effort to find the right books. I'm sure at least a couple of my students are going to disagree and they're going to say, no, 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 I've never enjoyed a book. Books are bad. Um, books punched me in middle school and took my lunch money. And I get that. I don't blame you for having a grudge against books, especially if maybe the books that you've been required to read haven't really spoke to you. But I, I really believe that if any of my students let me pick some books for them over time, I would find something that really works, something that would grab them and until the last page, not really let them go. This is a poem and it's a narrative poem about a character who has just that experience with books. 
And as a narrative poem, it has characters, it has a setting, it has a protagonist, essentially. And so students really shouldn't be talking about the poet here. Uh, Focus on the speaker, or the narrator, because we have a singular speaker, slash narrator, who is giving us their story of adventuring through books. Now, unlike the last poem, this one has a single perspective, and given that our narrator seems to be a young child, the use of the first person is kind of a sneaky way of letting us see their imaginative world from their own perspective. So for this reason, our passphrase is first person. Now, just because there aren't multiple perspectives doesn't mean there aren't shifts. Just like last week, all poems have them. Just about. In fact, I spy two here. One at line five, where it says now, and another at line 21, which begins with so. Words like this are kind of signal phrases, and they're clues to shift. Uh, They're a way to show you from the poet, hey, something's changed right here. Feel free to explore these shifts in your responses, students. Uh, I think any capable analyst of poetry is always looking and thinking about shifts or turns, if you prefer to call them that. There's also a great, really simple, and I think friendly rhyme scheme that could be discussed if you were willing. But again, you don't have to do these. What you have to do is use the term first person. Additionally, this poem response requires students to complete a writing task. Last week, I asked that students use a brief summary of the narrative and the response, and I really think it made some of those responses more effective. Some students might choose to do it again here. They don't have to, but they could. This time, however, I'm specifically looking at the evidence that students are using. The writing task this week is to ensure that all evidence used is appropriately short. In fact, I want all of this week's quotations to be five words or shorter in length. Using shorter quotations makes embedding those quotations into sentences far easier. Students should also be sure to specifically explain what quotations mean and how it helps to prove their point. That's the commentary. That's required. Always. But the writing task is quotations that are no longer than five words in length. Here's the poem. The Land of Storybooks. Robert Louis Stevenson. At evening, when the lamp is lit, around the fire my parents sit. They sit at home and talk and sing and do not play at anything. Now, with my little gun, I crawl all in the dark along the wall and fall around the forest track away behind the sofa back. There, in the night, where none can spy, all in my hunter's camp, I lie and play at books that I have read till it is time to go to bed. These are the hills, these are the woods, these are my starry solitudes, and there the river by whose brink the roaring lions come to drink. I see the others far away, as if in firelight camp they lay, and I, like to an Indian scout around their party, prowled about. So, when my nurse comes in for me, home I return across the sea, and go to bed with backward looks at my dear land of storybooks. The students... Be sure to only use quotations that are five words or shorter, and use first person in your response. These are your writing task and secret passphrase, and are required for full credit. Remember to complete your paragraph-length response by Wednesday, January 20th, and two replies to the responses of your peers by the Friday that ends the week. Your paragraph-length response should include a tag and make a claim in the opening sentence or two, and any evidence you use should be short embedded smoothly into your sentences and fully explained. And a quick reminder about claims. 
they must require proof. If your first sentence just says that this is a poem about a child who likes book, that isn't a claim. Your claim cannot be obvious. It has to require evidence and reasoning. So be sure to read the assignment instructions for a full breakdown of the expectations. If you enjoy this podcast, have suggestions, or like me or my class to direct an eye toward a particular poem or poetic device, leave a comment on LeidenTeaches.com or on Twitter. I am at LeidenTeaches. The content of this podcast is used as a companion to class instructional activities and ownership of these texts remain with their stated authors. Thank you for joining me for episode 41 of this podcast. I hope that between now and the next time you hear from me, you discover and savor a few things that you yourself find quite excellent. Excellent.